If you have your Bible, open it up to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair rack near you, either in front or behind you. Um, And I was not as diligent as Josh to figure out the page number there, but um, it's somewhere near the back, James. Uh, It's 1013 in my Bible, but not in yours. But uh, James chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I'll give you a second to turn there. As you're turning there, let me tell you about an article that appeared recently uh, last March in the New York Times. Uh, Appeared March in the New York Times. This article was about anti-aging. I don't know if you know this, but there is a whole science and discipline around anti-aging or longevity of life. And how to extend life as long as possible. And many of the scientists that work in this discipline, not surprisingly, have a hard time finding people to test out their theories on. So they test them out on themselves. And they follow their own theories. And the New York Times ran this article back in March about how's it going? These anti-aging longevity scientists, the bottom line is not that good. Um, And they give some examples. The first one goes back to the 1930s. A nutritionist named Clive McKay designed a low-calorie diet for his lab rats that gave them all the nutrients they needed but kept them as thin as supermodels. I don't know what a supermodel rat looks like. Maybe it's the Giselle bunching of rats. I don't know. But he claimed that his rats lived to be the equivalent of 130 human years. Dr. McKay applied his theories to himself nibbling on morsels from his own fields, but he didn't make it to 130. Uh, He was trim and athletic, but he had two strokes and died at 69. Not exactly 130. Another researcher, Roy Walford, stuck to a a 1,600-calorie-a-day diet. In the 1980s, he wrote a book called The 120-Year Diet. Then he followed it up with another book called Beyond the 120-Year Diet. He became famous, became a cult figure for thousands known as cronies, which stood for calorie restriction with optimal nutrition. He hoped to live past 100. He died at 79. Some of the other biggest names in dieting, the wild foods enthusiast Ewell Gibbons was far ahead of his time in his advocacy of a plant diet, but he died at age 64. The nutritionist Adele Davis helped to wake millions of people to the dangers of refined foods like white bread, but she died of cancer at 70. And Nathan Pritkin, one of the foremost champions of low-fat diets, died at 69. Interestingly enough, uh, Robert Atkins, who advocated the exact opposite, high-fat diet, uh, also died at 69. Um, Finally, this one's the most interesting to me. Jerome Riddell, I don't know, I didn't know him before reading this article. Jerome Riddell, he's the founder of a publishing empire dedicated to health. He was invited uh, on a television show to talk about it. And the uh, television show, uh, Dick Cavatt interviewed him and invited Mr. Riddell on the television show to interview him about this. He was the guru of organic food. Mr. Riddell was 72 years old at the time. He took his chair next to Mr. Cavett, started the interview, and he proclaimed that he would live to be 100 and then made a snoring sound and died. (laughs) 
I did not fact check that. That almost sounds too good to be true for an illustration. Uh, not for Mr. Riddell, but for an illustration. Uh, but I'm, it was in the New York Times. I'm going to assume they fact checked it. But here's the thing. Life is short even when you're trying to extend it. Life isn't that long. Maybe you get 50, 60, 70. Maybe you're blessed with 80. Maybe you get 90. But it's not that long. Not in the scheme of the big picture. Not in the scheme of eternity. In fact, last week we looked at James's words in chapter 4. And he talks about life. And he said, your life, he said, it's like a vapor. It's, it's like the breath coming out of your mouth on a cold day. You see it for a moment and then it's gone. And we know that, right? I mean, even those of, us that, those of us that may end up having a long life, we know it's not that long. In the scheme of human history, in the scheme of eternity, what's 70 years? What's 80 years? It's not that long. Short. But here's the thing I want to talk about this week. Short does not mean insignificant. Short does not mean unimportant. Our time on this earth is not insignificant and not unimportant. Our time here, as, as compared to eternity, may be short, but it is not insignificant and not unimportant. In fact, it is. So this morning, James talks about, as we move on to the next passage in chapter 5, he talks about how are you going to live this brief life that you have? How should you not and how should you live? Many people will live by this motto, life is short, live for today. But I think James has something else to say about that. So we're going to talk this morning about how you should not live and how you should live, according to the Bible, according to James. This morning's message is broken up into two parts, and uh, many people would say for preachers that you have two jobs. For a preacher, your job is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. I'll let you decide which category you're in. But I will tell you that the first part of this message, which James has to say, is more of the afflict the comfortable part of the message. The second part, if you hang on through there, if you're part of the afflicted, <laughs> is more of the comfort the afflicted part of the message, all right? And uh, it's how not to live and how to live. Uh, James chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin... In verse 1 there. And I'm going to sum it up with this uh, statement right at the beginning. Uh, that here's what I think James is saying on how not to live. How not to live. Don't value stuff over people. Don't value stuff over people. There's several points under that that talk about that. But the main idea James is saying, look, if you want to live a significant life, if you want to live a life that God wants you to live, then be careful that you don't value stuff over people. And here's how he starts. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and your flesh and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here's what James is saying. Don't value stuff over people. And I think the first warning is this. Don't hoard stuff for today. Don't hoard things to yourself. Be careful about greed 
when it comes to valuing stuff over people. Now, I think as I open this passage, you, can, you might recognize it. It says, come now, you rich. And some of you just think, I'm off the hook right there. Whatever else he's saying after this, it's not to me because I'm not rich. And none of us are, right? None of us are. Whoever's rich is either a lot wealthier than us or a little wealthier than us, but it's not us. I mean, that's what we think sometimes, right? I'm not going to give you all the statistics of where Americans rank in world wealth. I'm not going to give you the statistics on how rare it is that you get to sit in a comfortable chair in a climate-controlled room on a Sunday morning and drink your warm coffee and listen to someone preach about God. How rare that is, that you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from or the clothes they're having clothes this morning to wear to church or even having reliable transportation. All those things would be extreme wealth to much of the world. Let me just put it this way if we don't think you're rich. If we, if we don't think we're rich, let me just put it this way. Can you take your phone and with a couple clicks of your finger order stuff and have it delivered to your home on your porch by tomorrow? We're rich. That is unheard of for most of humanity's history and for many people in the world. They couldn't imagine such a luxury as that. And we get upset when two-day shipping doesn't really mean two-day shipping. We're rich. So before you write this passage off, I would say let's be careful And look at what it has to say to us. And James is saying, don't value stuff more than people. And when you hoard stuff to yourself, you end up valuing stuff more than people. This is Hetty Green. Recognize her? No? Probably not. Because she lived back, uh, she was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts in 1834. She died in New York City in 1916. During her life, Hetty was known as the Witch of Wall Street and gained fame not only for amassing great wealth when doing so as a woman was unusual when almost all the financiers were male, but she, uh, she died thanks to family inheritances and wise investments. She was worth somewhere between $100 and $200 million, which in today's climate or today's uh, uh, would be equal today to somewhere around two and a quarter billion to 4.5 billion dollars. But that's not really why Hetty Green is famous. At least that's not probably why she has a Wikipedia page. The reason Hetty Green is famous is because the Guinness Book of World Records lists her as the world's greatest miser meaning she spent or enjoyed very little of her money, nor did she use it to better the lives of anyone around her. She, uh, she was said never to turn on the heat or use the hot water in her house. She wore one old black dress and undergarments that she changed only after they had been worn out, did not wash her hands and rode in, an old, rode in an old carriage. She ate mostly pies that cost 15 cents. 
Uh, Green uh, conducted much of her business at the offices of Seaboard National Bank in New York, surrounded by trunks and suitcases full of her papers because she did not want to pay rent for her own office. Uh, She, uh, at one point, uh, she instructed those that washed her clothes, their wanderers, to wash only the dirtiest parts of her dresses to save money on soap. I don't know if you've tried that. I don't know. Her, husband, her son, Ned, at one point broke his leg as a child. Hetty, again, worth $100 million, tried to have him admitted to a free clinic for the poor. Ended up not getting the care he needed, and his leg had to be amputated. Hetty Green. But here's the thing. There's a little Hetty Green in all of us, isn't there? I mean, there's a little bit in all of us that starts hoarding things and is tempted to hoard things to ourselves. There's a little bit in all of us that wants to get all we can and can all we get and just kind of keep it to ourselves. Comes out in, I think, when you see children relate to one another. Have you ever seen children maybe, you know, when they're playing with Legos? You know, maybe that maybe if they're in school and it's an indoor recess and they go they go to the Lego bin and all of a sudden they scoop up their big, you know, batch of Legos and they put it on the table beside them and they're playing with their Legos. Then the kid beside him is playing with their Legos, but then he realizes he needs one of his Legos. And he asks them, Hey, can I have that Lego? And what's the answer? No, it's mine. No, you can't have it. I might need it. It's my Lego. And the kid beside him, you know, working his Legos and finally recess is almost at an end. You know, the time's almost up. You're obviously not going to use all of your Legos. They may not say it that nicely. But you're obviously not going to use all of your Legos. Can I have a Lego? Nope, it's mine. The interesting thing is it's not his, right? Belong to the teacher or the classroom. But we get this thing, right? Nope, it's mine. You can't have it. It's not just kids. James is saying it happens with adults. He said, you handle your riches like this. You would rather see them rot, corrode, become moth-eaten in your clothes than give them away to someone else or use them for someone else. You are so attached to your goods. You hold on to them so tightly that you'd rather see them waste away in your barn than be used by someone else. And he says, when you do that, you are valuing stuff more than people. And he says that, James is saying, that is no way to live. That is no way to live. Valuing stuff more than people. And he goes on, he says, it's not just hoarding. There's more to it than that. He says, verse 4, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he's saying to these rich people, look, you aren't paying people what they deserve. And it's happening at harvest time. Why is that significant? Because harvest time was the time you had the most amount of wealth. You just brought in all of your harvest. Your wealth is at its peak. And you're holding back the wages and you're defrauding the people that actually did the work to bring in the harvest. 
Now, the application of this may be for some of you that own a business. James is saying, look, when you make all this money and the people that help you make it don't get paid a fair wage, you ought to be careful that you might be valuing stuff more than people. But I think it also applies to all of us, whether you own a business or not. Have you ever been invoiced for something and been slow to pay it? Not because you couldn't pay it, but just because you didn't get to it. Just because, ah, oh, that's not, oh, they're probably all right. They're fine. They're, you know, they don't need the money. You know, I don't know if that puts you under the condemnation of this passage, but I think it's at least something to consider. I remember when I used to get the newspaper delivered to my house, um, and the deal was this. You get the paper delivered all week, and on Sunday, you leave a little envelope with the cash in for the paper boy to pick up because he delivered the paper to your house all week. And he gets paid, and he pays for the papers and all of that. And what would happen is Sunday morning is a busy morning for me. I'm usually up early, and I didn't always have a little cash lying around to put in the envelope, and I would skip it on Sunday. And then I might forget it on Monday, and I might get it to him on Tuesday. And one day I was reading this passage, and I became very convicted because I'm withholding wages from someone who earned them in some way. And I, I, again, not sure it's a direct comparison to this passage, but it at least should make us think, be careful that we don't value stuff more than people. Think about the people that have earned the money that, uh, that we owe them. So be careful not to exploit people for your own gain. I think that's what James is saying here. Don't exploit people for your own gain. When you exploit people for your own gain, you are valuing stuff more than people. Third thing he says uh, is uh, following verse, starting in verse 5, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What James says here is he says, be careful you don't get too self-indulgent. Be careful you are not so much a consumer that you hold on to your things, that we hold on to our things so tightly that we never are willing to even allow God to take them out of our hands. I think this is one for us, self-indulgence, we constantly need to consider. As Christians, our lives in light of God's word, how self-indulgent are we? I mean, this is the time of year, right? This is the time of year where you are getting bombarded you're getting bombarded by television ads. It's, it's mail in your mailbox and email in your email box. And it's billboards and it's all kinds of things that you buy this, you need this, buy this for them, get this gift. If you loved you, them, you would do this. It's a December to remember. It's the year, whatever it is. It's all the stuff that you are supposed to be buying. And do we ever take a step back as Christians and say, let me evaluate in light of God's word how I should be using my money? Am I being self-indulgent? I think we need to evaluate ourselves. Here's some questions to consider if we fall maybe under this category of how not to live. Do I hoard things? Am I guilty of over-accumulation of things? Do I have more than I need? I don't know that having more than you need is a sin, but I think you at least have to ask this question. 
If you have more than you need, why? Then how am I using it? If I have more than I need, why and how am I using it? What's the purpose of it? Sometimes we can forget that we're blessed in order to be a blessing. Do I buy into the culture's message that indulgence in material possessions or other services will satisfy my soul? Have I ever used power or other services, uh, power as an advantage to victimize someone else? All these things, I think, are things James is saying, look, be careful, you rich people, because judgment is coming if you value stuff over people, if you live your life in such a way that you exploit others for your gain, if you constantly live for self-indulgence. Because what we're essentially doing at that point is making riches and ourselves God. It's really a sin of idolatry. And he says, you rich people, holding on to your riches, watching them rot away rather than using them. Be careful. That's, not, that's no way to live is essentially what, what uh, James is saying. That's no way to live. So how should we live? How should we live? Quickly. As we continue in James chapter 5, life is short. Instead of live, don't li uh, live for today, I think James is saying life is short, live for tomorrow. Life is short, live for tomorrow. Keep tomorrow in mind more than today. Hold tomorrow more valuable than today. Or let me put it this way. Value God's promised tomorrow more than your problems of today. Often with riches, we're trying to solve our problems of today. I think James is saying value God's promise tomorrow more than your problems of today. You say, where do you see that? Let's continue in James chapter 5. He says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think James in this last part of this passage gives us three things to wait for. And the first thing he says is wait with patient trust on the coming of the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Jesus came once. And that's what we remember at the Advent. His first coming at Bethlehem. But James is saying he's coming again. He's coming again and he's going to set things right. That the first coming opened up the doors to salvation. The first coming opened up the door and started the kingdom of God. But the second coming is going to set things right. When Jesus comes back again, this period is going to end. And a new heaven and a new earth is formed. And, and Jesus that will set things right. Justice and mercy will reign. And the tears will be gone and sickness comes to an end and the coming of God sets things anew and sets things right. And James says, wait for it and look forward to it. But here's the thing. Throughout church history, many Christians have often looked forward to the coming of Jesus again. But I wonder if at times we are not so comfortable that we don't look forward to it much anymore. I wonder if at times that we don't get so comfortable in this world that we aren't looking forward to the coming of Jesus. That we aren't looking forward to him coming again. It's interesting that when you look through the history of songs written, hymns, 
church songs. That most of the songs written about Jesus' coming come out of times of trial and difficulty and affliction of people. I don't hear a lot of people writing songs today about come Lord Jesus quickly. About come Lord, we need you. I remember when I was in youth group that uh, when I was in the church in youth group that there were kids that would always say, I hope Jesus doesn't come before fill in the blank. There's all kinds of things. I hope Jesus doesn't come before I get my license and get a chance to drive. I hope Jesus doesn't come before I get to go to college, move out of my parents' house. I hope Jesus doesn't come before I get my first kiss. I hope Jesus doesn't come before I am married. All kinds of things. And here's the thing. I think when we have that kind of thinking, one of two things is true. Either one of two things is true. Either we have lost sight of how good God is or we have lost sight of how bad this world is and how much pain is in this world. See, I think when we can buffer ourselves from the pain in this world, we may lose sight of that and not be looking forward so much to Jesus' coming. But when we can see clearly the pain in this world, the injustices that take place, the pain that comes into people's lives that we cannot do anything about, that try as we might, the, the smartest people in the world haven't been able to fix it, the injustices that take place, the pain that takes place. And when we see that in reality, at some point we come to the place and we say, Jesus, come, because we can't fix this. But when we blind ourselves to some of that pain or when we buffer ourselves from some of that pain or we think that it doesn't exist or we think, well, our lives are comfortable and I don't have to think about it and then we're not looking forward as much to the coming of the Lord. But if we will understand and look around and see the pain, the pain that people experience that we can't always fix with Band-Aids or quick cliches or a few dollars, and we say, Jesus, come. Jesus, come, because that's our only hope. So if we are not looking forward to the coming of the Lord, I think one thing we need to do is make sure we understand really the pain that's around us. The second thing is we may not remember how good God is. That the same God that created every pleasure you are able to enjoy in this world is the same God that created heaven and says it's better. It's better. And if I can trust that, that I've got good gifts here, then i got to trust him when he says that's better. I'm with C.S. Lewis when he gives the illustration of the fact that sometimes we're like kids playing in a mud puddle and God's saying, I've got an ocean I want you to swim in. And we're just satisfied playing in our mud puddle. When we're not looking forward to the coming of the Lord, I think we've either lost sight of the pain of this world or we've lost sight of the goodness of God. So James says to you that are afflicted, wait, God's not done. Jesus is coming. And you say, well, it may not feel like it. He said, James says, I know, it's like the farmer. It's like the farmer, James says, who puts the seed in the ground. No, I'm not a farmer, but I've had my backyard gardens and I know how it works, right? You put that seed in the ground and you, you, know, you cover it up with dirt and you water it and you come out the next day and nothing. Looks like dirt. 
And they come out the next day and nothing. It looks like dirt. James is saying a farmer knows he's got to be patient. You don't, you don't put a seed in the ground and then it comes up. And, you know, you've got to be patient. He says the same thing with the coming of the Lord. Be patient. In fact, Peter in the, in the Bible, he addressed this in his letter. He said, look, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? But do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow in his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Peter, Second um, Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 through 4. That's what he says. In fact, he says that some will say things are going on now as they always have. In some ways, that's true. Peter says, we have a skewed understanding of time. It's like some of of you are parents of young kids right now. And maybe you're doing the advent with them and you're talking about Christmas. And your kids know there are nine more sleeps till Christmas. There are nine more sleeps until Christmas morning. If you don't know it, I promise you, your little kids know it. And, you, and they are thinking, Christmas is never going to get here. Why is it taking so long? I've been waiting forever. When is Christmas going to get here? And you as a parent are thinking, I can't believe there are only nine days until Christmas that this is flying by, and where did December go? This is a different perspective of time. And that's essentially what Peter's saying. Look, with God, day like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. You have a perspective of time that says it's never coming. Why? Where's Jesus? It seems like it's taken forever. But God's timing is different. And so wait and trust. Trust that just as people waited for thousands of years for that first coming and it happened just like God said it would, that the second coming will happen just like God says it would because he proved himself. He proved himself. Every one of the hundreds of prophecies about where the Messiah would be born, when he would be born, how it would come about came true. And it will come true again. And James is saying, be patient, wait. Second thing James says, in your waiting, wait without grumbling. And there's not even too much to say about this. He's pretty clear. Verse 9 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So apparently back then, people were very different than they are now. They grumbled against each other. Churches were very different. That doesn't happen now, but it happened back then, so this isn't relevant to us. Um, But James says, look, you know what happens when people wait? You know what happens when people get impatient? They start grumbling. They start complaining. They start pointing fingers at each other. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is almost here. Don't, Don't let him find you. Come back. The judge is at the door. Don't let him come back and find you grumbling at one another. And you say, well, I don't grumble, and I don't either. But... I think sometimes a lot of the grumbling takes place these days online. I think we have grumbling tweeters, grumbling Facebook posters. Instagrammers are a little more lighthearted, but maybe they grumble a little too. 
There's a lot of grumbling that takes place online. We take shots at each other from the comfort of our desk at home or our phone. We don't see it that way, but I think James might say, stop grumbling against one another. You need to be praying for one another. You need to be praying for each other. You need to be loving one another and carrying one another's burdens. So while you're waiting, don't grumble against one another. And finally, wait while you're waiting. I think James would say, wait with purpose. Don't just wait, but wait with purpose. And verse 10 says this, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed that remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James closes with this example. He says, look at the prophets. And essentially, he's saying, you are not the first people to have to suffer in patience, waiting. And that's not easy to hear. Maybe that's not much comfort for the afflicted. But James says, look, there's been the people of God all throughout history at times. The prophets experienced affliction. They experienced difficulty. And they waited patiently. They didn't just wait, though. They continued to speak God's word. They continued to do God's work, try and bring about God's mercy and justice and righteousness. And you're called to do the same thing. You're called to do the same thing, to live for God in the midst of a culture that isn't. To live the truths of God's word in the midst of a society that doesn't. And it's sometimes you might suffer for that. And so James puts these two words together, patient suffering that you patiently suffer. We don't like either of those words. But James says, this is how this is how you live life. This is the life you're called to as a follower of Jesus. At times, it may involve patient suffering. And that's not easy to hear. But remember, Jesus is coming again. There's something you're waiting for. God's future promises are more valuable than your present problems. And so live this way, trusting God and waiting for him. And so this is how James says, how not to live, don't value stuff over people, and how to live, live patiently waiting, waiting on God, looking to him, living your life for him. Life is short, live for tomorrow. I'm going to ask our music ministry to come back as we prepare to respond just to God's word this morning. Again, I think we're tempted to think this passage doesn't apply to us, and yet I think we need to be careful to look at our lives. We would always say that it's someone else that's richer. It's someone else that exploits other people. It's someone else that values stuff over people. But just for a moment that we would look inside our own lives and ask if it's us. What would it look like if we would live our lives with the end in sight? 
What would it look like this week if you actually lived your life with the end in sight? If you actually lived your life for tomorrow and not for today? If you actually lived your life believing that God rewards you in what's coming? If you actually lived your life believing that what God said is true is true and that my treasure really is laid up in heaven and not on this earth? That the stuff of this earth actually corrodes and is temporary and just like the Legos, it belongs to someone else and we'll go back in the box and I leave this earth without it? What would it look like if I lived my life really believing that what's coming and what God has in store is more important than what I see in front of me? We would turn off our devices and spend time with God and other people. We would take much of the energy we put into blessing ourselves and use it to find ways to bless other people. We would tell others how much God loves them in spite of what they might say back to us. We would risk our reputations. Some of you may risk your jobs to share the truth about Jesus. What would it be like if we actually lived our life trusting and believing that tomorrow is more important than today, that what God has in store and to come is more real than what I can see with my eyes and touch with my hands today. James is saying, live wisely. Don't live like these rich that value stuff more than people. Live like a people who are waiting and trusting that God is gonna bring about what he said. Trust him, believe him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, God, as we come to you right now to look within ourselves. It's so easy, God, for us in a message like this to look everywhere else other than inside our own hearts. And God, so I pray that you would help us to be a church and to be a people that would be careful in how we handle possessions and positions and the things of this world that when they are seductively working their way into our hearts and into our lives and luring us away from you and who you've called us to be, that we would recognize it. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us for times where we have valued stuff more than people. We have let an unkind word come from our mouths towards another person so we can preserve or get our stuff. Forgive us when we have exploited or taken advantage of people just to secure more stuff. Forgive us when we have held tightly what you have called us to hold loosely. Lord, and make us into a people who have more belief and trust in your promises to come than we are fearful of our problems that we see. Lord, help us to look forward to the day when you make all things right and when you make all things new, believing and trusting that it will come just as you said. We love you. We ask you to lead us and help us to be a church that lives our lives in light of these truths. In Christ's name, amen.